redemption. We have been moving through um, the Lord's Prayer, and we're continuing in that this morning. Um, but before we get started, let me pray for us, and we'll move on from there. Holy Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning, um, to sing together so far, to uh, be reminded of your great love and generosity toward us. God, I pray over the next few minutes as we dive into your word and look at um, some stuff across scripture that you would be at work in our hearts and minds to draw us to you, to draw us to Jesus. Um, God, I pray that you would use me as an instrument of your grace and mercy, an instrument of your love, the gospel, that Jesus would be glorified, that we would hear from you, and that we would be encouraged by your great love for us. God, we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So Matthew 6, 12 uh, is this part of the Lord's Prayer. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Uh, I can't read that part of the Lord's Prayer without focusing in and just sort of being captured by the word debt or debts right from the get-go. Um, when I hear it, my mind sort of darts to several different stories in the Bible that reference debt in some form or fashion. And uh, some versions of this prayer, uh, depending on what tradition you come from, maybe uses the word trespasses or sins instead of debts. Um, but based on my limited understanding of, of how this is actually written, I think Matthew probably really did intend for this connotation of debt to be used over and above other words like trespasses or sins. Like there's an intentionality to using the word debt. So when I started thinking about this portion of the prayer, I couldn't help but think back to what was supposed to be the Old Testament practice of Jubilee. I don't know if you're familiar with that practice in the Old Testament or, or not, um, but let me just read briefly from Leviticus chapter 25 to get us started on that topic of Jubilee for a minute. Leviticus 25, verses 8 through 10. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seven month. On the day of atonement, you, sh you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. Right, so just a little bit more context and background. God's people after the exodus as they're going into the promised land. Um, when they were going in to, to, to live in the place that God had promised them, they were given this agricultural cycle that they were supposed to follow. And it basically looked um, like this. They were on a seven-year cycle where for six years they were to plant their fields, and then in the seventh year take a sabbatical from that planting and harvesting. Meaning, right, they're not to plow or plant. God told them, if you do this in the seventh year, if you continue to follow me, if you continue to follow after me, then at the end of the sixth year, I'll make sure you have enough to last you until the harvest of the eighth year. So this was supposed to be their seven-year sort of agricultural cycle. The year of Jubilee, though, was to occur after seven of those cycles. 
the 50th year that we just read about from Leviticus 5. And this year of Jubilee is probably one of the most radical ideas in all of Scripture, uh, like in a true definition of, of what it means to be radical. It's just a, a wild idea, right? Um, truly, truly wild idea. But uh, to make it even more so, and to just highlight what Jubilee was all about, the Jubilee year was to start on the Day of Atonement. If you're familiar with the Day of Atonement, that's Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur was the day that, among other things, when this was originally, when Moses originally gave this to the people, Aaron would sacrifice two goats, right? There would be two goats that were sacrificed. Uh, Aaron would sprinkle um, the blood of one of the goats on the Ark of the Covenant, and the other goat was to be used as a scapegoat, meaning that... Um, Aaron placed his hands on the head of the goat, confessed over it the rebellion and wickedness of the Israelites, and sent that goat out into the wilderness. And the goat carried on itself all the sins of the people, which were to be forgiven for another year. So their sins were to be forgiven for another year. The year of Jubilee starts on this day when their sins were forgiven for another year, the 50th year. Beyond that, during Jubilee, each person was to return to their own ancestral property and their own family or clan. There was to be no selling. There was to be no repaying. There was to be no uh, gathering. You could eat what the land produced, but debts were to be forgiven. Property was to be returned, and Israelite slaves were to be freed. Just imagine being an ancient Israelite who fell on hard times. Maybe you weren't wise with your money. Maybe you or someone in your family got sick for whatever reason. Maybe you're unable to work and you had to sell everything. Even the land that God gave to your family during the exodus from Egypt and the entry into the promised land. Maybe you had to become servants or slaves to other Israelites. How would you ever get yourself out of that situation and not pass it down to the next generation? That's what the year of Jubilee was designed to do, to prevent the dirtiness of that generational dust being sprinkled down the line. Right? Since it would probably only happen once in a lifetime, you can imagine that an impoverished Israelite might spend a major portion of their life waiting for this moment of restoration, for this moment of having their debts forgiven, their land returned, and being able to go home to their family. It's almost like God had a plan to prevent generational poverty. There are no narrative stories in the Bible about the year of Jubilee actually being celebrated. Some would argue it was never meant to actually happen, that it was just eschatological in nature, meaning looking ahead to something else. I'm not sure that's the case at all. I think what's more likely is that if the year of Jubilee actually didn't happen, it probably didn't happen because it was costly for people to forgive debts. For those with all the power and money, it would have cost them something great to forgive debts, and to give up the property that they'd acquired. 
But what a beautiful picture it would have been, right, of God's salvation from captivity or God releasing his people from a debt that they could not pay, of God saving them from a situation they could not save themselves from. When God gave the Israelites this idea of the year of Jubilee, he references in Leviticus 25 over and over that God is the one who has redeemed his people from Egypt. This idea of rescue and redemption and forgiving and all of those things come up over and over and over in Leviticus 25. In verse 38, one example, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan to be your God. In fact, the chapter ends, Leviticus 25 55, the chapter ends this way, For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants, they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This idea of redemption, of God rescuing his people, of God forgiving um, debts, and all these other things that are wrapped up in Leviticus 25, all point back to God's great rescue of his people from Egypt. Right? You get it, right? God says, do this thing, forgive these debts, return back to the property that I gave you, rescue your brothers and sisters, because I'm your God, and I rescued you from Egypt. And we move forward to Luke chapter 4, when Jesus begins his public life. He walks into a synagogue, and he reads this quote from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Bringing liberty, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, setting captives free. Right, you see how all this ties together. Jesus is our true and better jubilee. Jesus is the one who pays our debts and sets us free from that which we cannot free ourselves. And surely, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray this prayer, this idea of jubilee and the forgiving of debts was in his mind. And so for us, we have to ask ourselves the question, what are we praying when we pray this same thing? When Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts, even as we forgive our debtors, what are we proclaiming when we say these things? What does it mean for a believer to pray this prayer to their heavenly Father and to keep on praying it? And, and you remember that Ben set that stage for us a while back. This is a prayer to our Father. It's a family prayer. Right? It's a prayer to our Father, our present and involved Father. Often in the church, when we talk about our sin, when we talk about the debt we owed that we could not pay, the debt that Jesus paid for us on the cross, it comes across in a way that makes it seem like we should think very low of ourselves. But that's not what we're getting at. That's not the right view of debts being forgiven, of sins being forgiven. We often see sin as something along the lines of missing the mark, missing the mark of righteous living. Part of that is because 
um, of the way that some of the words in the New Testament are, are interpreted and translated. But if we were to go one step further, we probably often just understand sin as doing bad things, doing things that we shouldn't do, or maybe not doing things that we should if we were to have an in-depth conversation about sin, our understanding might be more nuanced than that. But, when in all, but in all reality, when we boil it down, the way we talk about it even, we talk about sin as just doing bad things, things that we shouldn't do, or maybe not doing things that we should. That's a mistake, because if we approach our own sinfulness with the mindset of do, do's and don'ts, then we are dramatically underestimating the power of sin and we are drastically undervaluing the work of Christ. The work of Christ to set us free. The work of Christ to pay our debts. What if sin is not missing the mark of righteous living but instead something else entirely? Missing the mark of true worship. Recently I read where a pastor said something like this, we're doing Christians a disservice we talk about our external sins without understanding the sin behind the sin. If we go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, when we talk about Adam and Eve falling, we often talk about them eating the fruit that they shouldn't have eaten. And that's where we talk about them going sideways. But that's not actually where things started to go wrong. It started to go wrong before that. If you go back and look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, the real problem was that they wanted to be like God. Satan didn't say to them, or the serpent didn't say to them, eat the fruit and break the rules. The serpent said, eat the fruit because you'll be like God. The sin behind the sin, right, is always idolatry. It's always us putting ourselves in the place of God and determining what is worthy of worship. Right? We think about the Garden of Eden and what God did with Adam and Eve. Humans weren't just called to keep moral standards. They were called to celebrate and worship and procreate and take re responsibility within God's creation. Morality was certainly important, but it wasn't the whole story. Adam and Eve, humanity as a whole, all of us, we've turned everything upside down by giving worship and allegiance to forces and powers within creation. Idolatry always goes hand in hand with evil. Idolatry and injustice are always linked together. The result of idolatry is always slavery and death. Sometimes for others, sometimes for ourselves, but it's always slavery and death. And when we worship and serve forces within creation, we hand over to our idols powers that they were not intended to possess. And as we have done that, as we've worshiped non-divine things, those things have run rampant and spoiled lives and ravaged creation and mastering people and doing their best to turn God's world into a hell. Thinking of sin as merely behavioral underestimates the power of sin because in doing so, we will fail to understand the sway that sin actually holds over us. We will fail to understand the way that sin actually holds us in captivity. Thinking of sin as merely behavioral undervalues the work of Christ because in doing so, we fail to grasp the great victory that Jesus 
has won. And that's what we are praying for and celebrating in this, par- in this prayer. It's Jesus' victory for us. It's Jesus' rescue of us. It's Jesus setting us free from that which we couldn't free ourselves. It's Jesus bringing the year of the Lord's favor. The divine rescue of sinners from captivity. Captivity to our state of sin. To our idols. To death. Jesus frees us from that captivity and frees us to worship him instead. The only one we can worship that actually won't enslave and hurt us, but instead free us to life. Right? We truly do need to be rescued from our captivity and idolatry, and that's what we're praying for. And that's what we're remembering and celebrating for both ourselves and asking God to do for others when we pray this prayer. When we say this prayer, we're celebrating what Jesus has done to set us free, like God did to the Israelites in the Exodus, like God intended to happen during the Jubilee. We're praying that Jesus would continue to set us free when we daily find ourselves indebted to idols that have captured our attention and taken our minds and hearts away from Jesus. Right? When we, when we say this, forgive us our debts, that daily, every day, that as our hearts lose focus, that God would work to set our familial relationship with him back to rights. Right? Because that's the perspective of this prayer. We're praying to our Father, not because he hasn't already forgiven us, but because we want our relationship to be whole and reconciled, and we want to celebrate what God has done, and we want what God has done to be for everyone else as well. Praying this prayer also calls us to live it, though, and specifically here, to forgive our debtors as we've been forgiven. One of those other stories in Scripture that my mind went to instantly when thinking about this prayer is found in Matthew chapter 18. There's several verses, but I'll read it for us. Matthew 18, starting in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servant saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all the debts. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. 
That's a somewhat frightening parable, I think, in all reality. But I don't think the actual point of this parable is that you must forgive in order to be forgiven. Rather, I think the point is that if you close yourself down to being forgiving, you're closing down the very part of you that received forgiveness. It's part of what I mean. Let me explain part of what I mean here, right? Part of living this prayer is living a life of being forgiven as well as forgiving. And that starts with the, recogni- with the recognition that being forgiving and forgiving others are two sides of the same coin. N.T. Wright puts it this way, failure to forgive wasn't a matter of failing to live up to a new bit of moral teaching. It was cutting off the branch you were sitting on. Cutting off the branch you were sitting on. The only reason for being kingdom people, for being Jesus' people, was that the forgiveness of sins was actually happening. So if you didn't live forgiveness, you were denying the very basis of your own existence. You see what he's getting at, right? To be a member of God's kingdom means to be a person that has been forgiven, a person that has been redeemed, a person that has been set free from our greatest enemies, our captives. And so if you don't live forgiveness, then you are denying the very thing that you are, which is forgiven. And so it's not that forgiveness is some sort of moral requirement that comes with penalties if you don't forgive. God doesn't actually deal with us in that way. Instead, forgiveness is a way of life. It's God's way of life. It's God's way to life, and it's indicative of life in God's kingdom. Receiving forgiveness and then giving it isn't a bargain we make with God. It's a way of life in God's kingdom. Right? And surely that's how Jesus' first followers understood this prayer, that they were to forgive one another their sins and offenses. But we would be remiss if we didn't also recognize that part of Jesus' meaning here is that these believers should have no debts, actual financial debts, with one another. It's easy to say that since the debt we owe to God was moral or spiritual, that this debtor language is solely a metaphor for something else. But I don't think we can actually get away with that. The problem of debt was serious at this time in history as indicative um, of the parable that, or, or, is it, or is shown by the parable that, that, that we just read from Matthew 18. And the early church certainly lived and related to one another in a way where they thought Jesus was talking about actual debts with one another. And so Jesus' words here aren't just about forgiving those we feel have offended us. It's about recognizing that in God's kingdom, God is concerned about justice and peace, and that extends all the way to social and economic relationships. Right? This prayer leads us to be people who in every area of life are the people through whom the unique victory of Jesus on the cross, the victory that brings freedom, the, the victory that actually redeems people is proclaimed to the world. Justice and peace and truth and mercy 
will one day be actual realities in God's kingdom. And the church, largely defined as the people who pray this prayer, we are the advance guard of that coming kingdom. And so to pray this prayer is to pray for the world as much as it is to pray for us. It's to pray for justice down to social and economic relationships. To live this prayer is to live with one another first and foremost with forgiveness and with no debts to one another in the family of God. But it's also to think and dream and live and act in a way that not only announces God's jubilee to the world, but actually works in the world to bring justice and peace and mercy and freedom. I I don't have all the answers here, but imagine being a church that relates to the world in a way that actually brings the cancellation of debts to so many who are trapped in cycles of poverty and captivity. Surely that's part of what Jesus was getting at. Not just saying, you've offended me, therefore I forgive you, but actually working for justice and peace in the world. Most of us don't see that kind of poverty on a daily basis, that type of entrapment through cycles, but it exists. And God's intentions for his kingdom are that peace and justice and freedom from captivity and mercy and all those other things actually come to reality. And one day they will. God's kingdom will be fully realized. But in the meantime, we are here to announce and to be that kind of people. So what do we do with all this? I would leave you with just, with just this. Someone has said that it is the birthright of believers to breathe in true divine forgiveness on a daily basis. And that cool, clear air, like crisp mountain air, fills our bodies with something better than the dirty, grimy air that we're probably used to. And so as this air fills us with something good and clean and changes us from the inside out, let's learn to be people who recognize that the very basis for who we are is God's forgiveness. And as we're changed by that recognition, as we're changed by breathing in that clear air of forgiveness, let's learn to be people who extend that forgiveness out. Not as people who look out at the world and view it simply as morally bankrupt and evil, but instead see it as a place where God's jubilee actually needs to be enacted. Let's be people from the inside out, internally and moving out, who live and relate to one another and to others as if God actually does want to bring his kingdom to the world. Let's be people on the forefront of that kingdom, proclaiming and bringing the forgiveness and victory that Jesus has already won. We're going to move into a time of response, um, but I would urge you, encourage you to seriously uh, reflect on and consider these things. If not now, um, in uh, in the hours and days to come, that we would be that kind of people that God has called us to be.
during this time of response, um, the band will come back up in a second and lead us in some songs. We have an opportunity to give during this time of response. I know that most of us probably give uh, electronically if we give, um, but there's a, a basket in the back if not. Uh, but more importantly than that, uh, we want this to be a time where we actually remember that God is our provider. And so regardless of how we give, if we're a part of um, this family, regardless of how we give, just recognizing that it all comes from God and that our act of giving is actually worship. Um, we'll also move into a time of communion. We take communion on a regular basis here uh, at Redemption to remember God's great victory and to proclaim to one another that it's true. Uh, and so in just a minute, you can come down the aisle here, take the bread, dip it in the wine or juice, um, remembering the body of Christ that was um, broken for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us, um, knowing that in, in taking communion, we're, uh, like I said, remembering what Christ has done and proclaiming that we believe it and that it's good. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and we can continue on with that. God, thank you for this reminder from your word this morning that you are good, that you are our rescuer, God, that you've redeemed us, God, that you've made a way for us to be right with you. God, even greater than that, you've, or, or just as great, you've, God, you've set us free from that, those things that would hold us captive. God, over the next few minutes as we take communion, as we sing, as we think about other ways that we worship, God, I pray that the great victory of Jesus would be at the forefront of our hearts and minds. And God, that you would lead us to be a people who actually want that great victory to be realized in the world. Holy Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this time that we get to worship and celebrate. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen.